This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project where I talk with artists about their work and their lives. The ultimate goal here is to give listeners a better understanding about the experiences and people behind the artwork. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, straight on, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Help support and sustain this project by making a donation online at deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also learn more about each contributing artist and find links to their online portfolios. Be sure to share this project within your community and become a subscriber in Apple Podcasts. Your continued support and belief in Deep Color is profoundly important, and I thank you for your generosity. This episode profiles Sean J. Patrick Carney. Sean is a visual and performance artist, writer, comedian, and art educator. He has written essays and reviews for Art in America and Vice, and teaches in the education department at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and at Dia Beacon. He is also the producer and host of Humor in the Abject, a weekly podcast that focuses on the exchanges between contemporary art and comedy. It's another exciting, thoughtful, and relevant resource for anyone interested in how artists work and think. We recorded this conversation in his kitchen in the Bushwick section of Brooklyn. Kind of try to conjure something, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's something about starting and, and anything creative that's sort of like this, this like sort of. Hopefully an instinct takes over and you just go. Uh, and other times we back ourselves into a corner and like, oh God, what do I do? And then sort of para- you're in paralysis or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I had this teacher and it must have been yeah. undergrad or something said, um, you know, the most important thing is getting over those first 15 minutes in the studio. And I remember at the time, just, I don't know, I was like younger and I was just like, fuck you. And now I'm like, oh, that was, yeah. That was yeah, that, there's there's some truth to that. Um, hardest things. Because you walk in and it's yeah. like, it's the prison of freedom. Yeah. You know, you're just like, I don't, I mean, and that's why deadlines and things are great, right? Sure. Because you're like, oh, I have to, I literally have to get this done. And this person is expecting this thing. Mm-hmm. But to just... Go, I mean, I admire my friends who have like studio, studio practices. Right. We're just like, I'm going to the studio tonight. And I was like, what are you working on? They're like, the fuck if I know. Mm-hmm. Like, really? Yeah. It's a muscle <laughs> that they're exercising usually. Um, one of the things I also do to start these things out is try and find something to discuss that's sort of, or mostly unrelated, but we could kind of bridge it back in. And you sort of fed it to me last night when we were emailing or yesterday. And you brought up cooking and food yeah. as something that's, important to you and that you do a lot of and we're sitting in your kitchen recording yeah um so i wanted to sort of i've never made that connection yeah (laughs) i'm not joking (laughs) you just said that i was like is that why i like to record in here yeah yeah um (laughs) but i thought that'd be a a, a, an interesting space to start so um what is it about cooking or how uh, um what brought you into it what do you cook uh how do you how do you connect it to your creative practices yeah i think I mean, I, I suppose I learned to cook when I was, uh, not, I wouldn't say well, but I started trying to cook stuff when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And that was because I read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle in maybe like, I don't know, like 10th or 11th grade or something mm-hmm. and immediately decided I'm, I'm a vegetarian. And right. I grew up in Northern Michigan and that's in the late nineties. That just wasn't a thing that right. people were. So I was just like, oh man, I'm going to have to, I can't expect my parents to make a separate meal for me every time. So I would try to make some stuff. And admittedly, I was just learning like very basic, 
you know, I, yeah. I would make pasta. I would make a quesadilla, like not healthy. Fried egg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like uh, very few vegetables for being vegetarian, but you know, it was like not necessarily available. But I think just as I got older, it became something that uh, living in spaces that have a common area with other people, um, I always wished that there was a time that I could spend that wasn't just in my bedroom and a, and a time to kind of focus on something. And so even the last few years now that Claire and I have had this place and we have our own kitchen that we don't share with anybody, it's just this thing where I feel like it's something that's creative. It's something that I can do. Um, I can experiment with it. And it's just, it sounds cheesy, but it's just, it's like a meditative thing. I can yeah. listen to the radio, sit down, kind of plan something and, and try something out. And I think the way that it relates to a creative practice is that something that, you know, I think a lot of us try to think is that, oh, I take risks. Right. I do this or I'm down to do this thing or something. And I mean, who am I kidding? I don't know if I do actually do that in my creative work, but something about like cooking is both a little bit stressful because you want it to taste good. But if it's just for you, it's kind of low risk because you know? yeah. if you screw something up, whatever, and, and you learn from it, and you turn something else in it. But uh, I wish I had the boldness in like an art studio to just be like, I'm going to learn how to do know, like a caustic painting yeah. or something, <laughs> but like, I'm not going to try that, but I will straight up be like, I'm going to make pho yeah. like from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, they turn out really great. And sometimes I'm just like, Oh my God, like I have ruined so many meals right. trying something. Right. But I, I think it's just kind of like, it's fun and it's low risk and it doesn't feel like there's public pressure. Mm -hmm. Um, to do anything with it and so i'm not like a food blogger so I don't right. like i don't have to get a good photo or something like that mm -hmm. but it's just like it's such a creative process and something that i admire that i kind of like to be like a poser foodie mm -hmm. i mean i don't know a ton about food and i you know i literally just look up recipes on like epicurious or yeah. something else like that and just give it a whirl but it's uh it's fun and it's meditative and i mean it's nourishing and it's i don't know it's, it means something to invite somebody over for dinner like it's totally. a, it's a big thing. It's like sharing Breaking some bread. space. Yeah. And I love having people over. I, I'm when somebody invites me over for dinner and they make dinner, I'm just like, what a nice thing that you just did. Like you spent all this time. Totally agree. So yeah, I think it, it relates a lot to like what I hope is the generosity that's in art, the way that we kind of share things. Mm -hmm. And, but food is just, everybody can understand it. Yeah. That's well said. The, the other thing I was just thinking about, you know, sort of the similarities and maybe even some of the differences between, an art making practice and a food making practice is maybe I, I I'll argue that in a food making pra uh, practice in yeah. cooking there's a beginning middle and end sort of clear yeah in an art making practice the end is elusive and yeah. can lead to all sorts of stresses and head banging against the wall so like in my own life um, maybe to balance out my my studio practice I I gravitate towards the things that have a clear beginning middle and end sweeping the floor yeah vacuuming yeah um when i'm visiting my parents um they have a, a field like like driving the tractor through the field with the big rake thing behind it, yeah, the yeah. tiller or whatever um it's like why mowing yeah. like mowing the lawn is yeah. rewarding yeah you know what i mean yeah and i i'm you sure can, and there's there's you can quantify your effort there's something to be seen absolutely yeah. and, and <laughs> i know i mean i'm not an idiot i know that people who are like i have a lawn and it's not fun to mow like yeah. i get that but yeah. as, a, as a person who us does, two in a city here with no lawns <laughs> who doesn't regular things no i like those kind of things it's like um like have you ever shaved somebody's head like uh, yes. it's the same thing yes. as like mowing lawn. You're yeah. just like, oh my god! Like it's a one to one of what's yeah. happening. There's a beginning and an end, yeah, and a, and a middle part of the yeah. process. And, and yeah. that even just feels good. Yeah, yeah. You know, and cooking's like that too. You get done, you're just like, oh my god! I have like a meal. Yeah, I made a 
I made a whole meal yeah. and then, and then you get to experience it. So it's this thing that has an end, but the end is also a totally different process. Uh-huh. And I think, uh, we don't know how our art is going to be consumed. Whereas with food, it's super easy to just be like, well, I mean, my friend who's coming over is going to eat this. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. So. And they'll either like it or not like it yeah, or yeah. something in between maybe. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. And they won't tell me if yeah. they like it or not <laughs> like it, just like my art. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's the last great thing you cooked? Um, oh man, the last great thing that I cooked, what? Or that you surprised yourself with, I guess. Um, what did I, I made a couple things this week. I mean, I, I do it a lot and right now, um, my girlfriend is in school. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I basically, I make all the meals. I make her breakfast, I pack her lunch and then I cook dinner. So when she comes home, it's here. Um, but so I've been making a bunch of different stuff, but what did I, oh, I made, um, I mean, this was just kind of fun. It was super easy, and I kind of got into this lately, but we make a lot of, like, rice and things like that, and so you always have a ton left over. Mm-hmm. And we had this coconut rice, and I was like, I'm going to try to make fried rice. Right. Like, I've never made fried rice before. And just looked up this cool recipe. I can't remember the uh, cooking vlog, but this woman had put it up, and it was super simple, and I played a little bit of jazz with this stuff because that's why cooking's kind of fun is, oh, I don't have that thing, but I have this. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I want to use this other, you know, I'm going to use shallots instead of onions or something like yeah. that. But uh, it got done and I, and I just tasted it and I was like, Oh my God, this is like, and there's that transporting thing where I'm like, I remember, whoa, eating fried rice as like a kid in oh, Northern yeah. Michigan. And the first time that had, there's this different kind of, Memory. um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was, so that was like kind of dorky. Cause it's not hard to make. The rice was already cooked. Yeah, it yeah. was leftover rice. I <laughs> cooked it with some eggs and some vegetables and things like that. But it was really fun and it rewarding. Yeah, yeah. And and then I have, I mean, I have some leftover in the fridge. That's great. Lunch. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm probably going to have it today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, another sort of thing that I tackle in this project is the, the many different hats that artists and creative types wear. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, we're multidimensional people. Um, and sort of learning about you through... Uh, your podcast and through your website and reading some of the things that you've wrote um, or even just on your your online presence your what your web portfolio you list visual art writing um, video um, you mentioned that you're a comedian um, and I think this is in the notes I sent you but I'm, I'm wondering you know, if you have all these different ways of working or getting an idea out there, um, I'm always fascinated here when people have a few different ways of working, um, how they decide which mode to work in and deliver that idea. Is there, is there a rhyme or reason to that? Or is it just sort of, ah, this makes sense. I'm going to go with it. Um, that's a good question. I think it's to try to think about and lots of people that I know and admire work in, (coughs) excuse me, work in a lot of different, uh, media and, one thing that I try to think about all the time is, you know, what ties these things together. And you mentioned that I, I do frequently say, oh, I'm a comedian. And it's like, I used to do stand-up comedy and I um, I still do performance art. And perhaps it might look more like stand-up comedy than performance art or this or that. But I think that the idea of making comedy, that, that there are lots of ways to be a comedian. And that making comedy isn't necessarily just going up and doing five on a stage, but producing different things that are kind of like, uh, meant to be thought of as jokes and jokes in kind of like an expanded form Mm -hmm. or the idea of comedies as physical objects. Um, 
and that was i think in the email that you sent me to you had put a note in like what's a concrete comedian and that that's from this book that uh the artist david robbins wrote okay um <clears throat> which is called i think the subtitle is uh an alternative history of 20th century comedy and I, the basic premise of that book is that throughout the entire 20th century there were all of these people doing things that one might actually be able to argue qualified as comedy mm -hmm. you wouldn't put it in but it's a comedy of doing rather than saying so mm -hmm. it's about a long form joke the the long con the the this thing to that thing so in a the setup in there yeah something. yeah in like a, a sustained kind of practice that goes over time that when reflected upon it's kind of like oh these could be seen as like jokes almost right. and he's using um like vivian westwood's fashion as an example frank zappa's music um obviously andy kaufman mm -hmm. um and so that just got me thinking about like, oh, can you think of comedy as a as a medium? And so being a comedian. So if I'm making a video uh, or I'm doing a piece of writing, I mean, if I'm writing a review of a show for Art in America, that's not a comedy. That's right. a job. Right. <laughs> um, but when I'm doing other things, always in the back of my mind is this idea of like, am I making comedy right now? And so a drawing, a performance of this or that and uh I, I think I hadn't thought about it as specifically as this, which seems so stupid because it's like, I didn't think about the link between concrete comedy and as an artist, like I make comedy mm -hmm. until I interviewed a good friend of mine that I collaborate with a lot. Um, Daniel Glendenning, he lives out in Portland. We've done a lot of projects together and he wrote this science fiction book. Um, he, he wrote a novel and uh, released it last year at the New York art book fair. And we did an interview afterwards and I was talking to him about it and, I was like, what are you, um, you know, what, what are you calling what you're doing these days or something? He was like, I make science fictions. And I was right. like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, the novel is as much a sculpture as one of my sculptures, one of my performances. He's like, I produce science fiction. And no matter what form it takes, I'm doing that. And I was like, just thinking about how that's a little bit, that takes a little bit of the weight off of you to, to pigeonhole yourself. Right. And to just think, I mean, you're literally pigeonholing yourself, but yeah. in a way that is by design, through your own motivations and what you want to do. So I think that that's whenever I'm doing something, I'm just thinking, is this a comedy or mm -hmm. is this comedy? Right. And if it is, then I think, okay, like, great. And I don't always have to do that, but that, that maybe is what uh, gets me over those first few minutes of trying to figure out what I'm doing. Right. It's just like, is there a overarching kind of joke here? Right. Even if it's a slow burn. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like comedy is incredibly important and, and, I also think the comedians are some of the smartest people out there uh, in terms of how they digest, take in, digest, and re re, um, present what, what's sort of been known to all of us in some capacity. Um, and laughing is incredibly important. And I feel like maybe, I don't know, what do you think? In, in the past like 10, 15 years, I feel like the idea of comedy sort of seeping into contemporary art, if we can call that, that um, seems to have like a little bit of inertia behind it. Do you see that as well? Or is it just me sort of like becoming aware? No, I think it, it is. And it's, uh, I mean, you've got um, like a, I don't, I don't remember the exact dates, but you know, when MoMA PS1 was having Miriam Katz, <clears throat> like curating stand-up comedy to happen mm -hmm. out on the out on the steps or in the galleries yeah. or things like that there was like this i, I want to say it was probably around like i started to notice it around like 2011 2012 uh -huh. that all of a sudden i mean artists have all i mean 
artists have always used, I don't know, not always, but you know, we can think about the history of modern and contemporary art, and it's like you can go back to Duchamp, and it's right. like LOL, it's a urinal. Yeah, um, Dada <laughs> is like very funny. Yeah, um, I would argue that. I don't know if he would think so, but I think like Chris Burden's art's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of, I think there's, I think comedy is a term that has uh, hopefully a meaning that can be expanded upon so that it doesn't always mean like a one-to-one ratio between a laugh, but right. like the, the comedy in like the romantic literary sense, like a comedy can be dramatic, it can be tragic, it right. can have all these different things in it. Um, but yeah, it, it has certainly seeped its way in and become something that, you know, I, I, I don't know, I'm not like a philosopher on this, but I feel like maybe there was something after probably like around like 9-11 mm-hmm. where afterwards, like the idea of being sarcastic or the idea of being ironic or any of these things, it kind of like died for a minute. And right. people thought, well, no, we should be a little bit more sincere. Like it's, I mean, I don't even know what it is. And then something, perhaps it was the hysteria of living through the Bush years where it's not nothing that I, I had this professor, uh, MK Guth, uh, in school. And she one time told me something that's really stuck with me, which is like the stuff that, um, the, the things that artists tackle with comedy, the subject matter isn't necessarily funny, but the institutions that propagate and support these conditions are laughable yeah 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 and that was really eye-opening yeah that's that's where the absurdity lies for me and And, like you can't help but react right with comedy to some of this stuff because it's just fucking insane otherwise you'll kill yourself yeah 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 and and i think that something came and maybe it was like a collective release of like uh when obama was elected and so everybody kind of like relaxed a little bit but but i also think that people in the art world something changed as a different generation came up where it became apparent that simply by bringing humor or laughter into something that that can be a nuanced way of talking about things that isn't making fun of art Mm -hmm. like i remember in school not i wasn't like berated with this but periodically you know in a critique people would say i feel like you're making fun of us and i was like well fuck i'm not doing good comedy then the point is (laughs) not to i mean i that was a a legitimate critique of what i was doing Mm -hmm. um because I wasn't meaning to make fun of the audience. I love art. I mean, I love art to death. I've like wasted a ton of money trying yeah. to do it. Um, Built your life around it. Yeah. And so I'm very serious about it. But I think that, yeah, people's minds changed. They, they were able to, it's just a, a different generation of people who can kind of like, who didn't grow up under Greenbergian modernism mm-hmm. or something, who kind of get that it's okay to kind of like have a sense of humor about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think it must have been around, like I was saying, 2011, 2012. I mean, Robbins' book, Concrete Comedy, I, I'm going to get the dates wrong here, but I think it came out in like 2011. And I think he wrote like a primer for maybe Art Forum in like 2009. If, any, mm-hmm. if anybody's listening and I got those wrong, like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> but like, um, but uh, around that time too, and I've, you know, if anybody listens to the podcast that I have, Humor in the Abject, I've probably talked about this way too many times, but... In like 2012, I went to a residency at the BAMP Center in Canada that was called the Experimental Comedy Training Camp. And I remember when it was announced, and I, I was living in Oregon at the time, and I knew about the BAMP Center, but I've all, I up until that point had always been somebody that was like, man, the art that I'm, like, people are going to think I'm being an asshole if I even apply to their residency. Because right. I'm sending videos of me, like, throwing myself down a flight of stairs or something. Like, And now I think I could 
be like, well, yes, of course, the relationship to like the body performance art of the 70s. And like, mm-hmm. well, yeah. but at the time I was like, and I had a bunch of people, like, I think like six or seven people sent me that link to that residency call and were like, dude, look, there's like a thing now. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit. And it was uh, run by Michael Portnoy um, and his wife, Yeva, who's a brilliant performance artist and the faculty, like Reggie Watts was one of the faculty. And oh, so wow. it was really cool. And so I went up for seven weeks. Um, I got accepted to it, which was huge for me. Mm-hmm. And I went and I met mostly people from Canada, but people from Europe and other places like that. And all of a sudden there was like this group of people that we're all kind of having the same crisis that I was having, which was we want to be funny, but we're artists. But how do we, in some sense, it is our duty to present to people a type of comedy that lets them understand that like we are, we are not making fun of them. Right. I'm not making fun of you for watching me. Right. Um, and, And we spent seven weeks doing that, all these crazy theoretical exercises and lots of reading and, um, but always really fun. It wasn't the thing where you think, oh, well, now we're dissecting the joke, so it's not funny. It, it wasn't about that. Right. It was more about this long process of what are you doing? And when I came out of that, I was really energized and then just kind of saw for the last, I guess it's like six years. Um, it just really seemed like a more normal way to do stuff. And then all of a sudden, like comedians are performing in galleries and all these right. things. And I'll admit I'm a little bit skeptical sometimes because it's just like I've written about this before, but like anything else is... I think there's so many eclipses between stand-up, comedy, and performance art, audience. I mean, even some of the language that's around it, um, how a joke will land or how a bit will land. I I use that word all the time, like how how is this painting landing for the viewer versus the maker? Um, I'm going to riff on that section up in the corner of this you know, drawing yeah. in there and like riff is a, a, a thing, a tool in comedy. And I don't, it makes sense to me that there's, there's sort of a weaving in of the two, um, especially in this sort of social, political, cultural moment we're in too. That's super heavy, super scary. Um, I think what you're like this, this sort of, you know, bubbling up of comedy and art makes sense to me. Yeah. And there was, that, that makes me think of, there's this book that, uh, this writer, um, the author is John Lyman, who I, I think is like a philosophy teacher mm-hmm. or like a lit teacher or something. I can't remember what college he's at. It's escaping me at the moment, but he wrote this book called Stand Up comedy and theory or abjection in America. And, uh, the first chapter in it, I think it's called in rage. And it's about this Lenny Bruce joke. And the, the joke, it, it's basically just about the context and the site and where the joke happened and when it landed and when it didn't happen. And kind of this interesting thing that I won't get into that just kind of goes around, you know, what is a joke? How is it structured? Yeah. What is the relationship to audience? But the thing that I, the thing that clicked for me when I read this, however many years ago it was, about the relationship between the stand up comedian and the visual artist really did hinge on audience and Mm -hmm. and he's describing um you know lenny bruce's kind of swagger or approach and blah 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 and as this kind of simultaneous like the audience is your father but the audience is your child Hmm. so it's this like kind of weird oedipal also like paternal like this you want to you want to yell at them and berate them and like put them in their place yeah. and at the same time you like want to nurture and you want you want to like form a bond and like yeah just like you would with your father but you also want to teach them something like they're your yeah. child and you want to like bring this all that's it, in visual art yeah and, or, and hopefully when, you, when it's working yeah and when you put yeah. a painting on the wall it's like you 
relinquish the control just like when the comedian says the joke and granted with a painting it's like a it's a slower burn between the response time of the audience for the comedian it's like you know it's mm-hmm. like you laugh one yeah. to one it's got to bounce or whatever so it's they're, they're different dynamics but the same kind of architecture behind them of this like wanting to communicate and this wanting to be loved, but also right. this like recognition. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote this thing for art America a couple of years ago that was kind of based on Robbins's uh, book, but a, l- a little bit more of like a, maybe like a millennial take or whatever, but it was called site specific comedy. And in it, I was talking about, I think I was mentioning that John Lyman thing and uh, relaying a story of uh, somebody that I knew who'd been sent to like bad kids camp when they were younger. Mm-hmm. And one of the counselors being like, you know, every time that you know we try to engage with you it's like with one hand you're flipping us the bird and with the other hand you're gesturing come closer and they're like and it's just this constant and i was like oh my god that is really what like that's what being a performance artist is and that's what making art is and that's what doing comedy and all these things like this like and it's a funny place to occupy and so i think that that as all of these things, as I just kind of thought about this stuff more and more, I was like, oh, that really does make sense. Like, yeah. There is a link between these things. And that's why sometimes I say like, oh, I think this artist's work is funny. And I don't mean it in a reductive or diminutive sense. And I don't mean to say that they're even trying to make us laugh. I just mean there is like, like humor is complex. Sure. There can be humor in work that's like, oh my God, <laughs> like, I don't... <laughs> you know and that's uh that's what i mean and i i think that's like if i have any kind of like quest it's to expand the field of like thinking about what comedy can be because understandably a lot of people they don't like it because their experience is you know watching like a bill burr stand up or something they're just like fuck or adam sandler movie yeah they're just like no disrespect to those but i totally understand or maybe sometimes i'll I'll disrespect (laughs) those but they don't see themselves reflected in it. It's at their expense. It's conservative. It's fucked up. It's all these like things that, um, you know, I guess as we grow and we mature, like I thought that shit was funnier when I was younger. I yeah. thought being like an edge Lord was kind of funny. I thought I was like, Oh, if you're offensive and somebody doesn't get it, like the jokes on them yeah, at yeah. a certain point, you're just like, it's pretty easy to be offensive. Yeah. Like insanely. Yeah. It's so easy to be like, what if I were just hyper insensitive to an entire group of people? Right. And then, but if it's also lazy. It's super lazy. Yeah. And it's also, but it's also this like, it positions itself outside the realm of critique, which is like a problem for huh. me. Because if you are, if the point of your comedy, and I'm guilty of doing this when I was younger, and I'm, I'm saying this as somebody who's like done this and kind of grown up and been like, what the fuck was I thinking? You know, but I, I was intentionally making work that positioned myself outside the realm of critique because it was like, if you don't get it, mm-hmm. like you're stupid. If you're offended by it, it's because you're too sensitive. And if you get it, that's because you're like intellectual enough to understand that me being offensive is actually me critiquing the thing that I'm being offended. I don't know. It's yeah, like yeah, this, yeah. it's a circle jerk and it sucks. Mirrors I, looking at themselves sometimes. And I think comedy at large is changing drastically. Yeah. Like it's becoming more representational, not, not out of an optics need to check boxes. I mean, maybe at like major networks, but it's changing because like, oh, it turns out like, all types of different people have always been funny and have a shitload to say that's funny. It's just, they've been boxed out. Right. And I mean, that's changing a lot. Another, I feel real quick to sort of wrap up the connection between, or the similarities between comedians and different types of artists is I think both are examiners. We are, we are paying attention and we are um, dissecting and analyzing and arguably overthinking these things to the point where, um, we start to feel shitty sometimes and, um, 
but I think that sort of that that examination that like that perception of things around us experiences objects um plays a role too um you know versus someone that's like you know maybe walks more of a uh a, a, a life that doesn't dip into creative stuff that much someone sure, that's like yeah. an accountant or something like yeah, that yeah. um not that you can't be creative in accounting or something like that but i don't i think there are certain types of people that live certain types of lives that don't examine things as as much as a comedian oh, sure. yeah. or an artist and i think i think that's another thing that sort of puts the two together yeah or helps with that eclipse it's almost like you have to i guess final thought on that would be like you kind of have to be a forward-looking like future archivist although you're never appreciated for like your observations but then they somehow become historically yeah. like the the zeitgeist observations that were a few years ahead of the it's a very yeah. it's a a thankless person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to get back into your to, to your your different modes. So sure, you mentioned yeah. you make you write articles for magazines or um, you know journalism stuff. Um, you mentioned drawing at the front. Um, you know, <laughs> I guess I'm still stuck on the comedy. But one of the one of the through lines for all for all these different ways of working, as I understand your work, there is a layer of comedy or like a tone through it, and I think. Uh, I don't know. Would you agree, disagree that that's one of the connective tissues? Sure. It, yeah. It, through sort of like how you process stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the, you know, part of that is from the institutional kind of like training or just being in the context of something and thinking I have to have a cohesive thing. That goes, <laughs> but, but or your um, brand. Yeah. But <laughs> in a but in a sense that like it also helps me to organize things. Yeah. And it helps kind of you know if you set up a I, I learned this a lot. Um, I've learned this a lot through uh, through teaching too. Is that people um, they they don't want they don't want an authority figure, but people really respond to like parameters. Yeah, boundaries. Yeah, because it it both creates something to push up against, but it also makes uh, it makes sense of things. It creates an order, and it also creates a sense of like accountability between like a student and a teacher. And so having some parameters gives like guidelines that you can have fun with and mm -hmm. so if you assign those to yourself it's kind of like okay well um i don't know i mean i guess i i don't really actively think about it but i know in the back of my head i'm like well is this funny like do i think this is funny right and, and if i and if i don't i probably won't do it yeah um and maybe to my own detriment but it seems like i can even look at stuff that i made seven or eight years ago and be like oh i can see how the same yeah. artist made this even if visually it looks nothing like right. something that i'm making now but there's I don't know. It, it it helps get over the kind of anxiety of choice. Totally, I suppose. Yeah. Um, teaching. How'd you get into teaching? Um, that was. I think I just wanted to do that forever. That yeah. was uh, when I went to uh, undergrad. I was in. I was a art ed major. Um, mm -hmm. I went to Michigan State for two years. Um, transferred to Arizona State University um, just because I went there when it was winter in Michigan and I was like There's fucking palm trees here this <laughs> kicks ass and if I had only gone you know like 40 more minutes on a plane west I would have discovered California <laughs> but no no I mean I'm glad that I, I I'm glad that I went there but ASU is just kind of like a punchline school okay. you know what I mean but it's like the the party frat school these kind of, but really cool art department hmm. um, and I was majoring in art education and uh, also this is undergrad? Yeah, okay. and also printmaking. Um, I got into printmaking there. There's a really rich history in the Southwest of printmaking, and ASU was 
super into supporting like these really traditional methods. Um, but I was also taking these art ed classes and I, uh, was put into, I don't remember what it was. It wasn't like a work study thing, but it was part of my curriculum for a class. And I went and, um, shadowed a teacher at this high school in Tempe, which is ASU's in Tempe. It's part of Phoenix. And that's where I was living and, uh, shadowed this guy in his high school class and, uh, his high school art class. And I just, I had a fucking blast. It was fun. The energy was cool. It was like clear that the kids, you know, not every, obviously not all of the art class seriously, but they like, there was a different understanding and it's like, you know, the Simpsons joke. It's like, it smells like the art teacher's office, you know, like weed or something. Like it's just, Mm -hmm. there's like a, you know, they're caricature, they're like an archetype or whatever, but the art teacher's like, you know, you kind of like, the art teacher's kind of weird. They're kind of weird, you know, you like them. Um, And, but this guy was really cool. His name was Dale Cooper, which I loved, but he had never seen Twin Peaks. And apparently I was like the only person who'd ever mentioned to him like been like oh nice like special agent dale cooper and he was like what's that and i was like like the television show twin peaks and he yeah. was like i i've never seen it i was like no one in your life has told you that you have the same name i don't know what but <laughs> anyways i had a blast in that i graduated i started teaching um high school at this place called the metropolitan arts institute it's a charter arts high school in downtown phoenix and i got that job because through high school, I was cooking and waiting tables at uh, this restaurant called Restaurant Mexico. It was like this classic, like family-owned, like Tempe staple. Like faculty and students have been going there for years. Really cool. I loved working there. And uh, the director of the school, um, I was his server all the time. And so, you know, we formed a relationship or whatever. When I graduated, he said, you know, why don't you apply for a job? We have a job coming up. And I didn't get it. But um kept waiting tables and like making art and then another job popped up i applied again i eventually got it and so in the art department yeah and so i was teaching um uh you know like all the basic high school stuff taught a drawing class and like uh 3d design Mm -hmm. mixed media i brought some printmaking stuff in which is cool i got them to get a little press it it was cool because in uh phoenix it's so sunny that you can do silk screening without a like proper silk screen studio you just just step outside that's your exposure unit yeah you just (laughs) step outside for like uh, I think it was 30 seconds in the summer, 60 seconds in the winter. Um, and you could burn a screen. That's and, great. And we'd go to the um, teacher's lounge and, you know, print black and white copies off onto uh, transparency paper and just go out and burn a screen. It was really cool. And huh. so we had this really DIY thing and stuff. And uh, I, I loved teaching there. But, um, you know, I kind of got over Phoenix right. after I lived there like six or seven years. And um, Arizona is an amazing state um, and should kick Phoenix out. Because people have like a perception of Arizona that's grossly weighted because of Phoenix mm. and, and the politics of Phoenix. The rest right. of the state is beautiful. It's incredible. Mm. Like, um, but is Phoenix the capital? Oh, yes. I think it is. <laughs> I don't know. God, I can't believe I don't know that. No, I'm terrible at, at this. No, stuff Tucson too. is the capital. Tucson, there you Tucson's go. Tucson's capital. Yeah, because um, the capital is in Tucson. But I okay. went to grad school after a while because I was just like, I I want to teach college. Um, taught at PNCA in Portland. I was also an arts administrator there, mentored students, taught at Virginia Commonwealth University, moved up here to New York, uh, was working at NYU doing kind of like mentorship and an admin job. Uh, and then I worked, and then I left there to work full-time for Bruce High Quality. Um, and then years later, it's kind of ironic that this last year, I've been teaching at Dia Beacon uh, with teens from the Hudson Valley. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also was teaching at MoMA, which is the second time that I've done this for the teen program for New York City. And it's kind of, you know, people are always like, oh, you go back to what you liked when you were younger. And I'm just like, I got the bug to like work with high school kids. Yeah. It's so much fun. And well, it, like all the jadedness and all the politics of the art world, it's literally like, 
it's the joy of creating something and enfranchising a young person to be like, yeah. I can be weird. You know, like, be fucking, yeah. like college is going to rule. Be weird. Yeah. Like it's important to be weird in college. And they're like, I can just, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's fun. I really like no, it. No, I appreciate that. I also, you know, I, I teach undergrads too. Um, um, but they're, they're young. They, they feel like, you know, the joke is that it's, it's 13th and 14th grade. It's just a continuation <laughs> of high school a little cool. bit. Um, but, uh, um, I've never heard that I, I, uh, um, you know, there's, there's still, you know, to use another sort of stupid metaphor, they're, they're very wet clay. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're open, they're eager, they're not jaded, like you're saying. Um, man, I think it's funny. Like, I'm starting to think about even getting younger. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that might be because I'm a parent. I have two small kids. Yeah. And like, I'm seeing how they learn. And, like, I feel like if you can start get them, get them sort of thinking maybe like an artist for better or worse at a younger age, that might help them as they go up and I think using art as a lens to view life and to learn things is such a, uh, a great tool. Um, and to instill that in younger years. Yeah. The thing that I, mean, I like, fuck, about- I didn't get it until yeah. basically college. Yeah. Yeah. I, I failed. I've said this before on my own podcast, but I failed AP studio art in high school. <laughs> I got a one out of five on my portfolio. I literally, because you weren't showing up or were you? No, I did that. I fucking worked hard on it. Oh I man, just that's heartbreaking. <laughs> it was just so bad. It was so bad. But I think that the thing that I have also discovered kind of through working with these high school kids this last year that I really like is that um, not even, I would say a majority of them are planning on going to art school. They're that's just great. like really interesting, cool young people who are using this kind of vehicle or this style of thinking or thinking critically or getting to talk about stuff that maybe they don't get to talk about in school or they don't feel comfortable because of this or that like they can talk about their identity they can talk about their lived experience they can you know i'm not going to yell at them if they swear or something right. you know, like um but there's something about it where like they get exposed to this stuff early and it just creates like like isn't the whole idea of a liberal arts education that we're creating like more empathetic and informed like citizens and hopefully independent thinkers yeah which is hard seems like it's harder and harder yeah and so even if these kids don't go to art school it's like if they spent this time doing all these weird collaborative projects and just like kind of cutting loose and whatever it's like they're gonna be a better accountant Mm -hmm. they're gonna be a more interesting mathematician they're gonna be like and it's great because that's the i think art gets so siloed off that it's like oh they're the art people and the other people and that's why there's like this fissure between whether art is valuable is because you know people in kansas maybe see the way that artists in new york act right like fuck this i'm gonna slash this funding from the school who cares these are like these are like and pop culture parodies artists yeah you know we're not depicted very well i would argue Um, not at all yeah (laughs) (laughs) but i will say that sometimes i go to one of my friend's openings and we're standing around i'm just like this looks like when they do like an art opening on a sitcom or something yeah yeah yeah, i'm just like (laughs) i know man seeing like an art show on uh, on hbo (laughs) series it's just like crushingly depressing that was you know you know okay so like uh like tom wolf just died yeah um uh, I one time read, somebody told me, they're like, oh, you like art? You should read this like uh, later Tom Wolf book. It's called Back to Blood. Uh-huh. Um, and it takes place, I want to say, I, have, I read it once. Um, and it is around Art Basel, Miami. The whole story takes place in Miami and it's about this thing. But like the way that Tom Wolf like writes the artists and I was like furious when I was reading this book. I was just like, not because, not because it stung, 
but because it was such like lazy caricatures of people uh-huh. that I didn't even think were interesting that I was just like bummed out because I would love to read a novel that like had a juicy, totally fucked up weird artist person that I really believed in and like I might hate them. But I, but I thought that they, I was like, oh yeah, I could like, <laughs> mm, even if it hurt my feelings because I saw myself in them, but it was just the kind of like the lazy version of it that brought right. me out. So when Tom Wolf died, I was like, well, back to blood sucked. So I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> also, it wasn't like 130. Like yeah. he seemed like he lived long enough. Yeah. You mentioned, um, Bruce high quality. Yes. I feel like people should know what that is. Um, yeah. Um, a lot of people do, but give us a, a quick history on the Bruce High Quality yeah, like Foundation. The, the like several floor elevator pitch, because um, it takes it's mm-hmm. a little bit um, convoluted, but um, group of people who went to Cooper Union, who graduated um, years and years and years ago, uh, kind of were working collaboratively out of a studio and sort of came to the idea of, well, you know, there's this, there's the trajectory of the artist. It's you're a student, then you're an emerging artist, then you're an established artist, you're mid-career, mm-hmm. then you're, or, but I don't know the order, but whatever, and then you Some die. Some sort of and stair then step. Th- yeah, then you have a retrospective, then you die, and then a foundation is found in your name. And <clears throat> so their idea was like, well, why don't we skip all the steps and just you know, kill the artist, start the foundation. So yeah. a group of people working collaboratively under the name the Bruce High Quality Foundation, under the mythology that an artist named Bruce High Quality uh, had died uh on september 11th um and the story would change whether he died in the attacks or just the punchline was no he just died that day right but in new york <laughs> so this kind of you know but this kind of There's silly comedy that, yeah and i think that i think that now i don't think people would think it was i don't know you couldn't start that now um but at the time it was like you could it, it was like a little bit radical to have like an anonymous group of people who were like getting art shows and kind of being merry pranksters and people technically didn't know who they were like right. they were anonymous yeah. was the idea like no how many people at its height it was like between anywhere between like three and like a dozen okay so it would rotate and different people oh. would be in it yeah um but lots of people would get involved in different projects so all types of hands would be on it um but I mean, I think now, you know, clearly it was like a bunch of white dudes from Cooper mm-hmm. for the most part. I mean, besides, um, for a spell, uh, the artist Noah Davis was part of it. Um, Noah passed away recently, which is really sad for everybody involved in it. But um, Noah is not a white artist, but was part of it. But for the most part, you know, it was very homot. It was like now people would be like, oh, you're like making fun of the art world as like a bunch of white dudes. Yeah, that yeah. have the Whatever. But yeah. a different time, different. Whatever. But anyways, so they got some notoriety. And ironically, of course rich people thought this was like very charming and and so it became kind of like a successful goof yeah um and like a business and so there were a lot of different people involved in around 2008 um uh you know was i was in this is around the time of the financial collapse and i, I was actually in graduate school at the time i was not involved uh, at this point but um they you know there was this increasing pressure for people to get a professional degree to get an mfa mm-hmm. um I started my MFA in 2007. The economy collapsed halfway through, and then I graduated to a completely changed climate of like neoliberal uh, labor policies of right. art institutions, where like there just aren't full time jobs anymore. Sorry, yeah, like nope, we don't do that. Yeah, and but thanks also, for spending all that money on thanks the degree. for spending that money. We're graduating an insane amount of people every year that are far more than the like positions available for whatever. Yeah. I mean, but so they thought, you know, well you know, we critique all this stuff and we all went to school for free at Cooper union. And like, we believe that our school should be free. So 
they decided, well, let's as a, I think it originally maybe was sort of like, let's start a social sculpture that is a school. Yeah. Let's start. And so that was called BHQFU, the Bruce High Quality Foundation University. And that had several iterations. It started in uh, 2009 in Tribeca in a space that, if I'm remembering correctly, was like a, um, through the uh, Lower Manhattan Cultural Council mm-hmm. um, organization. LMCC. Yeah. Um, and I think some help from Creative Time. Um, Ann Pasternak was part of Creative Time at the time and was a very, uh, the joke in within the Bruce family is that uh, Ann Pasternak is the mom. Um, she really believed in stuff. Mm-hmm. And so they did that. And it was, the idea was that it was free. Anybody could teach a class. It was totally like outrageous and anarchy. And over the years became a little bit, uh-huh. Was it just like pop up the actual classes or they where where was the physical space Did it was move around it was in um, I mean the majority of the things took place in this basically disused office space in Tribeca okay. um, things would people would have offsite classes and stuff like that but it was pretty centralized and it you know it I mean quite frank I mean realistically it was like a Cooper Union um, frat yeah I mean a little hub of some yeah, sort it yeah. was like a you know and that that had a uh, that welcomed certain people. It made other people kind of feel like, ah, oh, this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. Um, over the years, the school both became formalized and I think attempted through a lot of different people's involvement to get uh, a lot more open. Um, right. Because free, you know, as anybody who is a critical thinker will tell you, um, does not mean there aren't barriers. Right. You know, there's the gal- a cost to Yeah, everything. the galleries in Chelsea are free. It doesn't mean anybody feels comfortable walking into them. Right. Um, but they went on a tour of the United States in 2011 called teach for America that was sponsored by creative time drove around in a, they bought a shitty limousine painted it like a school bus and drove around all these different cities. They came to Portland when I was teaching at PNCA in Portland and I brought my students to hear them talk and, uh, went in very skeptical, you know, I was kind of like, what is this? Like, what are these guys talking about? And, uh, but I mean, honestly, I was kind of like, Holy shit. Like it was just like, I can, you can just start a school. Right. Just call it that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not legally. You can't call it that legally, but yeah. like, but you can just do it. And yeah. and something about the permission and like the insanity and whatever. So some friends of mine and I in Portland, we started a school that summer that was called Cops, which stood for the Conceptual Organ Performance School. Obviously, we came up with the acronym before because Conceptual Organ Performance School doesn't make any sense. But mm-hmm. um, so that ran for several summers. I was part of it pretty heavily for a couple of years and then not so much. But when I moved to New York, um, started teaching there and the school moved to Avenue A in the East Village, was there for several years. That was kind of like, I guess you could say like the glory days, yeah. probably like 2013 to 2015 shitloads of people tons of people in every class all kinds of different stuff it was the first place i got to teach uh, a class called humor in the object which Hmm. was uh, a class where i interviewed funny artists and we had a conversation um lots of different stuff happened there and then um over a couple years it was just like different things in the landscape changed funding became harder and harder to come by like getting people to donate money like a thing that's a flash in the pan that's really exciting at first is easy to raise money for and then Uh, sustaining it's another thing yeah and then so i mean they had by the time that the school closed bruce high quality still an art collective still has a studio um but i was mostly on the school side so yeah when the school closed last uh august it had been eight years of running this free school so not a bad run for a bunch of bozos like trying to create an art school and i i think in hindsight there's there's a lot of stuff that I'm critical of. I mean, I was involved in it. There are a lot right. of decisions that we made and other things like that that I'm like, that was stupid. Or 
that disenfranchised people or we shouldn't have done that. But the one thing that was kind of interesting was it in the same way that it resonated with me when I was in Portland was what I hope was that some people saw something as, you know, we always talk about how we can't imagine an alternative to let's say capitalism or something like that. And even an imperfect, a deeply imperfect thing like BHQFU at least proposes uh, a, a physical concrete space that suggests that, yeah, it could, it could be different. And, There's alternatives. And it worked for a while. Yeah. And hopefully what happens is anybody who participated in that takes the parts that they liked, ditches all the parts that they didn't like and creates something like new. I mean, I think, right. <clears throat> I mean, the enrollment numbers in MFA programs across the country are like plummeting. It's yeah. like insane. Yeah. They cannot, they're accepting everyone who applies. Yeah. I mean, just if anybody's listening to this and you're thinking about applying, I'm just letting you know, like, real talk. <laughs> the vast majority of private art programs are accepting everyone who applies to their MFA. I'm just. What's I'm, the average cost of that, of a two year program these days? At like an ACAD school, which like ACAD schools yeah. are like School of Arts, Chicago, RISD, like the ones yeah. that you're supposed to go to. Yeah. Um, North of 50. Yeah. Yeah. I would say yeah i mean some are some are probably you know a little bit more affordable closer to like 30 35 a year <laughs> but like but no i mean it's it's astronomical it's yeah. outrageous and i think that people have um quite you know literally realized like this is you're not getting what you're paying for yeah the economics don't work and here's the thing is i'm not anti-mfa like uh-huh. i had a i had a fantastic time i love being in school you know, uh-huh. I've been in school since I was three. I'm yeah. 36 years old. Yeah. I have never not been in school. Yeah. That's all I've done in my life. And I love it. Um, I think it's great. And I loved being in grad school. It kicked ass. Yeah. It was so much fun. I learned so much, but I don't think I learned a hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff. Right. You know, like I just, and I don't think that it needed to cost that right. amount. Um, and I don't think I'm not anti-MFA. I am anti-anybody in 2018 or hereafter who has all the facts and knows what people who've come out have told you. Do not go to an ACAD school and take out a student loan. Yeah. If you can get into... I think avoiding debt is the big thing. Yeah. If you can get into like uh, a program that's going to fund you, do it. Yeah. Go to an MFA if it's free. Or if it's going to cost you, I don't know, if you get like in-state tuition or something. I mean, usually grad schools don't offer in-state tuition, but... You know what I mean. If it's within reason, yeah. If you can go, go for, for it. cheap, like do it. It's so much fun. But do not ever think that if you don't have uh, family money and you are considering taking out six figures of debt to go get a master's of fine arts degree. That will take you 15, 20 years to pay back you're not or earn pay, back. You're not going to pay it back. Yeah. Like that's the thing back. is yeah. you're never going to pay it back. Yeah. That's over your head. Um, so just like the reaper with his scythe. Yeah. So I would just say like, I mean, unless you like, if you have terminal cancer and you just want to like fuck up a bank, like, I mean, <laughs> that means go and take out the loan. Just don't have a cosigner. Yeah. Yeah. But, make sure it doesn't go to someone. No, else. but I don't know. I think people are changing. I think teaching is changing. I think people's approach to education is, and I'm excited about it. You're I, optimistic I hope, about it. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that, and people are also looking at different places as hub. Like it's not just New York, LA and Chicago that you can live in now. Mm-hmm. There's all this cool shit happening in all these places. And I think that's really important because it causes people to ask themselves the question of, well, what are you aiming to get out of this? Right. And what are you aiming to get out of being an artist? Is it fame? Is it money? Because like, if those are the things by any stretch of the imagination, the odds are dramatically stacked against you. Yeah. Um, less than 1% of people yeah. will this work out for. So it's a lightning strike. Yeah. So what else do you want? And if right. it's cool conversations with people, if it's like a bunch of weirdos that you're friends with and you like basically have adult show and tell. Yeah. 
I don't know. It's cool. And you encounter people who just think differently and have good conversations yeah. and it gives you an outlet to like produce something, make an object that attempts to often, you know, it doesn't work, but it attempts to communicate the things that you can't say. And I don't know. I admire people that do that. It's, it's no, like I agree. Saying, it's scary. I, I encourage people to find more than one lane in art. I think having multiple ways of working and like, for lack of a better term, side projects yeah. is a healthy thing um, to balance out and, and and sort of square some of the stuff that's maybe your main thing. Um, yeah, yeah, and to be okay and like, they, if you have a day job. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Have oh, a day totally. Job. Have a job that has yeah. nothing to do with art. That and used to be whatever. frowned upon. Now I think it's like I know some galleries encourage their artists to go get a fucking job because <laughs> they don't. Pay it like takes the wine factor down and yeah, the pressure yeah, yeah, yeah. off. I think that's yeah. that's that's sound advice. But I think it's also I think it's kind of cool if you have a, a just a job yeah. you just have a regular job but you're an interesting person who's an artist and you are at that job and you are interacting with people and being an interesting person in the world like so what i mean you have to live you have to yeah. do whatever and th i think there's no there's absolutely no shame like be a i don't know be a sanitation engineer yeah like be a be an elementary school math yeah. teacher uh work at your library it, who cares something disconnected like who cares because yeah. if you work in i mean if you work in contemporary art you're being exploited yeah like your yeah. labor is you're creating so much surplus value yeah for an extremely small group of people that like and yes it feels cool when somebody's like what do you do and you're like i work at this museum yeah and it's like oh you're on the inside but it's like yeah. no we're all being fucked yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. everyone is getting fucked yeah. and so you know you kind of i almost think it could be like I think it could be a very political decision. If yeah. you're like, actually, I work in beverage distribution for yeah. Trader Joe's. Yeah. <laughs> like, intentionally. That's kind I of more think, interesting. I think it is. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think one of the things I really wanted to weave into this was this thing that we are um, going back and forth about over emails, this idea of an audio art exercise. Yeah. And you, you said that you had two in mind. One was called Art Chopped, and the other one was called Milk and Salts. Um, are you... Are you cool describing one for listeners to maybe take yeah, on? Yeah, sure. Wait, do you mean you said audio? I mean, these are. Oh, more I, like... I mean, like something that we, uh, uh, an exercise that you describe. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Through the audio here. Oh, got it. For I, for the listener to try and to I try and I, do. I thought I grossly misunderstood, and I was like, no, no. did I tell you those were audio? <laughs> no, <laughs> Sorry, but, but uh, phrasing there. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, I mean, in some maybe somebody who's listening has seen one. I don't know if they have, but I, I do this thing that it relates to my love for cooking, which is that I also love cooking shows. Mm -hmm. I love cooking competition shows. I'm obsessed with them. Um, also I love television in general. All these like pop culture things really are yeah. in my work, I think, but my favorite one is chopped. Like I, I just love the show chopped. I think it's fun. It's crazy. It's weird. Like the archetypes of the people, everything about it. And as I was watching it for years, I just kept thinking like, somebody's got to do this to artists, you know, like you have, this is, this would be so easy to translate to art. And so, um, you know, by all means use this, just, I, I invented this shit. Okay? okay. So just know that I, I have a timestamp of when I did the tag first you one. on it or something. I used the first hashtag <laughs> yeah, of yeah. art chopped, but, uh, <laughs> no, but it's, it's super fun and it gives people an opportunity to make art, to participate in something and kind of do performativity. And even if they don't, know that much about contemporary art yeah they know enough about like the archetypes of artists and they know enough about the archetypes of people on reality competition shows that 
they end up having a lot of fun. And so basically what you do is, for anybody who's not familiar with the TV show Chopped, it's three rounds of cooking, and you have to make appetizer, uh, main course, and dessert. People are eliminated each, at each Yeah, each, each level, round somebody each gets round, chopped. Yeah. There's like three judges, four contestants, um, and each round they get a mystery picnic basket that has four like crazy ingredients that you're just like, how are they going to make? How are they going to put popcorn, ghee, like, melted tootsie rolls and a <laughs> pennies and pennies you know <laughs> yeah, all, but like they just give them crazy shit and every round they have to come up with something um then they bring it forward and they present it to the judges and they kind of discuss what it was that they did and kind of argue with the judges about why their food is good yeah so anyways i was like uh, i'm gonna make this we did one at this gallery called new release in the lower east side or in chinatown rather um years ago and so i actually did it as a class at bruce high quality one semester so um, and have since adapted it. I do it with my teens. I do it when I go visit other colleges. It's just a fun thing. You can do it in like an hour, hour and a half. And you have four people as contestants. You assign three people to be judges. Other people are the audience. And you just give them different art supplies in a box. And they can use like the art supply shelves, which I call the pantry. And basically, uh, instead of appetizer, main course, and dessert, it's group show, solo exhibition, and career retrospective. <laughs> and so each round, you have to like evidence your growth and come forward and like argue for your piece, but you only have five minutes to make it. It's like absolutely insane. And like we have tools and stuff sitting out. And But there's something kind of beautiful about it because on, it works on a lot of different levels. Uh, I've found doing it for years is that, number one, like if somebody's a good artist, like five minutes sometimes is all you need. Right. They will make something yeah. fucking cool yeah. out of the dumbest things. Um, but then also, so that's one like type of person who can shine in it. Another type of person who can shine in it is a person who's just like a really gifted like bullshitter. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had, you know, people who just do the funniest, like they barely do anything to the materials and they come up and they're like, and they give this like thesis on what the work is about and they title it and stuff. And then, and then this banter happens between the judges and the whatever. And I, I like to do it a lot uh, first day of class with new students because it's it's kind of like, you know how at, uh, okay, so like scientists have been hiring Alan Alda, the actor, yeah. to come and teach improv yeah. workshops. Because he's so affable. Yeah. Yeah. And it creates an ability for them to like, it's team building and so these things, but it's kind of like those things, but hopefully not as like... Um, enforced fun like when you go on a corporate retreat and they make you do trust falls or something yeah. it's i mean it's the same idea i'm not yeah, gonna yeah. lie but it gets people to a space where like both you can't be precious about what you're making you have to make something really quickly you participate in a group what i think of as like really a social sculpture like we're all doing this yeah. together we're creating a performance um i'm like hosting and doing whatever but all that i'm doing is the same thing every single time being like five minutes around the clock you know you must use this 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 and then boom uh -huh. and, and everybody else populates it and creates all the different elements and it's just super fun and it causes people to both get to a space where we build a trust we build a bond we've all been a little bit silly around each other um but also at the same time it it shows off that like for the rest of the term when we have conversations with each other and we're talking about work like always keep this in the back of your head, like how easy it is for us to get caught up in making up why something is important yeah. and how easy that is. So let's be able to pump the brakes and think about how do we not act like those caricatures that we played at the beginning? How do we have a real critical conversation about each other's work, be generous and, and engage instead of what I see a lot when I go visit other schools sometimes is because I'm not, I haven't been teaching in a, in a proper college college since like, 2014 yeah you're mostly at the museums 
at or, museums uh, and, at, and at Bruce full time right, for right, like four okay. years. Yeah. Um, so, but when I go and I sit in on crits in colleges, it's amazing how it doesn't matter if it's in um, North Dakota or if it's in New Mexico or if it's in California or Michigan. It's everyone says the exact same things. Everyone dances around the same topics. Nobody will get into whatever. And I, and so much of it relies on like both a sense of fear, I mm-hmm. think, um, uh, a, f- a fear of people finding out that you don't really know what you're talking about, Yeah, which I think is fine. You can own that. Yeah. And also um, a, a kind of a performativity that's not, I don't think it's conscious. Yeah. I think people are performing because this is how we talk about our, this is when I read things, this is how it's written about. I am all about people knocking off the like international art English and just like, just like you can just ask somebody a question about their work and and it's okay like it doesn't have to be confrontational but you know like you've been in a critique and it's like clearly this person made a work about like a topic that maybe is like about their identity Mm -hmm. or like something else and like you're just sitting there and you're like it's okay to say that to ask the person if this is about this thing you're not they're clearly trying to make this about this and if they disagree with your take on it they'll tell you like this is a space to have those conversations yeah i mean there's so much fear in these in these situations and um i mean i encourage students to sort of describe what it is they see first not not even get into what it may or may not mean yeah yeah. but just describe it aesthetically and then out of that comes maybe the question or the prompt for um, you know, something to do about the content of the thing. Yeah, and I think with younger yeah. people that works really well. It's funny, you're right, now that you say that. It's actually, it's generally, it's generally uh, a generation of older faculty and like graduate students who, yeah. talk, who talk the way that I'm that yeah. I'm describing right now. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily think that for like early undergrads or even younger instructors and stuff, but it's, there's a very like um, a polished kind of type Art of, speak. a type of institution, yeah, yeah. that has a, agreed upon like did we actually say anything about yeah. that thing or something yeah. or did we like i just was, create a, a fog of of like stuff that sounds like flute like high flute yeah that, yeah i was in one a little while ago i just sat in on one i wasn't like visiting artists yeah but sat in on somebody's crit um and it took i'm not shitting you it took 90 seconds for someone to bring up Deleuze, which had absolutely nothing to do with this person's like yeah nothing to do with it the artist did not agree with the statement had never talked about like nothing and this person just sort of said you know Deleuze says like blah 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 and I was just like and I could see the artist's eyes like cross because they were just like could you but this works in the room yeah you know you're talking about an essay that's way over here that you know most of these people haven't read right so why are you bringing this up yeah it's like a weird dominance power thing sometimes. yeah but um, anyways <laughs> it's positioning yeah it's the it's the critiquer positioning themselves outside the realm of critique yeah yeah it's like what i was yeah. saying <laughs> yeah i mean maybe this is a good spot to pivot into humor and the abject the okay. podcast yeah. um you know, we're talking about language and i think both your project and this project rely pretty heavily on language and 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 how we verbally articulate what's in front of us, um, or an idea. Um, and you, you're, um, really gifted at that. I, I appreciate how, um, Thank you. <laughs> uh, sort of accessible and, and light you make talking about art through your, through your pod podcast. And, um, I'd like to think I, I get there too sometimes, but, um, I'm wondering if you have, like, how did you find that path for, putting away the stuff that sort of makes us sound fancy 
um, in terms of language and just getting getting kind of to a place that is easier to latch on to for listeners and maybe also um, acknowledging that the audience is vast and it's not like specific to this grad school type sure, person. Yeah. Um, but how did you wind up? Uh, and it seems to me that, that, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a natural extension of who you are as a person and, and the way that you like to transmit teaching, writing, comedy, broadcasting, sharing ideas and knowledge. And here you are with the podcast you've been doing for what, a couple of years now? Uh, just, just had the anniversary Oh, or maybe about two. Yeah. Yeah. One year. Yeah. So that was my long winded setup to ask <laughs> you, um, like how you, how you found yourself and figured out how to, how to present it in the way you're presenting it. I think it was, so I, I believe, I, yeah, I did mention earlier that, uh, humor in the abject as kind of like an overarching concept was a class, was, was a class yeah. in fall 2014. So like almost four years ago. Yeah. And it was just, it was the first class that I got to design at Bruce High Quality. And I really wanted to do something that felt special to me that I felt like, I don't know if I could get this through a curriculum committee, not because it was so radical, yeah. but I just mean it, it just was a different kind of class. I, I think maybe now I've shown proof of concept. I probably maybe could teach it at a college, but mm -hmm. I didn't think at the time, but it was an interview class where I would invite People in, I had like the philosopher Simon Critchley, uh, I had the comedian Liza Dye, um, Sarah Greenberger Rafferty, who's a mutual friend of ours, was mm -hmm. a guest, um, Jason Musson, uh, just all these people that I thought, you know, there was a relationship, a very distinct relationship between either their writing or their art practice, or maybe they're a comedian. And yeah. I wanted to introduce them in an art class, but it was really fun. And I, I don't know that I was super good at interviewing people at the time but yeah. i was like hell i'll give it a try and, and it was really fun and i wanted to do it for a long time after that and um i think as uh uh as i knew that bruce was going to come to a close like the school i started to think about well you know i mean i guess i always kind of thought this was wrapped up with bhqfu but i, I mean i guess it's mine like mm -hmm. i mean i made it up what, yeah and i got a couple messages from people um that just kind of came within a window of a month or something. And they were people who'd participated in the class. And they were like, are you ever going to do this again? And I was just kind of like, that's weird. I've really been also thinking about wanting to do this again. And, um, uh, I started to talk to a couple other institutions who were wanting to host it. And the, the idea to record it came mostly from them because mm -hmm. they were like, you know, we want this for like an archive. And so we can broadcast right. and these things. And, I started to think about that and um, these didn't really pan out the way that we wanted to set stuff up um, <clears throat> almost exclusively because I asked them to give me money to pay for it. Right. Um, and they didn't create some incentive for the people, the subject yeah, they're going to talk to. They didn't want to. Yeah. Um, because I <clears throat> like when I do my podcast, like I, I can't pay people to come on my podcast. Right. But, but if it were situated in this institution that they're like, I'm giving a lecture and creating content for the institution, I was like, can you please give me honorarium to give these people? Some and sort of exchange. Like, oh, we don't really have a budget for yeah, that. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I don't know what to do with this. And then um, I'd put out a book for this comedian, Anna Fabrega, that I love. I love her to death. She's the funniest person in New York. And uh, somebody bought it. And um, I noticed that their address was at Kickstarter. Uh, it was, I just it said, you know, care of Kickstarter, yeah. something like that. And then that person tweeted about the book and I followed them and they wrote me and said, Hey, you know, uh, you want to go out for lunch? And we went out for lunch and, um, this guy, Taylor Moore, he's sort of like the comedy curator at curator, whatever you call it. He, he manages all the comedy projects. Yeah. And he said, you know, I just built this podcast studio. You want to use it? 
um, I like your writing, I like whatever. And, and I thought, wow, okay, I'm a um, 30 something white guy, artist slash sometimes comedian who lives teacher. in Bushwick and a part-time teacher, like, what could I do to be more of a caricature of myself? I could have a podcast, <laughs> no, but I was excited to do it because I used to, off mic before we started, I was saying that I, I had done podcasts in grad school as kind of like a way yeah. to make sound sculpture, and I, yeah, yeah. I really liked it. Just hadn't done it in a while, and so I thought, hell, let's do it, and uh, started to invite people in, and I guess the the impetus for it was that I love going and seeing an artist talk about their work. Yeah. I really do like to nerd, like, I'll go to an artist lecture. I love seeing sitting there in a seat it's kind of like a movie you know they got the big slides up and they tell you all about their life and they time the jokes at the right times and other things but yeah i mean clearly those are very formal and canned right yeah, you know, yeah. i mean i give them they're prepped I, yeah and i try yeah. to be a little i try to have a little bit of fun but i'm doing a version of what i've done before and then i thought about okay so that's really fun but it's really inaccessible to somebody who doesn't know anything about contemporary art mm -hmm. and my interest is in people is trying to bring the communities of people who are interested in kind of what um, I, I, there's just not another name for it, but people don't like this, but alternative comedy, like more weirder oblique comedy and, um, and emerging artists. And I just thought these people have so much in common. Like I want these conversations to happen in the same space. And then I was thinking about, well, when do I have a good conversation with my friends who are artists? And it was always, you know, after like one too many beers at a bar or something, and then all of a sudden you'd start to, you get into it and yeah. just kind of having, or they tell you a hilarious story about something. You're like, Oh my God, is that why you make monochrome paint? <laughs> you know, just like these weird yeah. kind of things. And I thought maybe there's something in the middle where it doesn't, you're not sloppy drunk, but you're not buttoned up at a lecture and yeah. there, there should be something in between. And so I just invited kind of like a roster of people and started to do it. And then, um, and this is at the Kickstarter studio. Yeah. So, like and a so, formal I, studio yeah, and so okay. I was going in there in the evenings and recording, um, and then I was uh, given a creator's residency there, which just meant that I could like I could come and go like I was an employee uh -huh. and kind of use the space. So I was still using the studio and stuff. And it was it was really fun because I got my chops together to like edit again and like kind of relearned how to do that. And then um, when it ended, I thought, hey, you know, I made a I made enough of these that like I'm going to go ahead and uh, buy a I'm going to buy like a mixer and make a little setup for my house. And um, Kickstarter had also just launched this thing that's very much uh it's kind of like patreon if anybody's familiar with that it's like a micro payment monthly thing they launched their own version called drip and it was invite only and so part of my residency was that i had to be working on a, a kickstarter related project and yep. i didn't really want to do a kick i mean what was i going to raise i was going to be like can i have ten thousand dollars just so that i can have it for my podcast which it, it seemed like a podcast is a long sustained type of thing and so this idea of you know, people subscribe to Humor in the Abject for $5 a month. And I mean, I'm not making a living off of it, but, right. but it helps justify things like, I need to get a third mic. Yeah. Or I need to get this Or thing. just your time. Yeah. And yeah. it helps out and it makes it, it also is just kind of like, oh, wow, you, you care about this? And I mean, I put out on the subscriber only feed, like we do this podcast with artist Ezekwe Muhammad and my friend Darcy Wilder, who's a writer. We do this thing called the DSA podcast, which stands for Darcy, Sean and Ezekwe, but the DSA, but <laughs> anyway, so we put that out. That's just for subscribers generally. And then I put up some of my writing. I put up like weird video pieces that I don't yeah. show anywhere else. And, um, so that's just like, you know, if anybody, if you listen to Humor in the Abject and you like it and you want to throw me $5 a month, like it, yeah. it means a lot. It helps out. But in any case, the you know every week an episode's put out for free publicly, and it just I kind of got just like hooked on it, and it's a fun excuse to do. I I love having the conversations, but I also really like making sound art, and yeah, um, 
I, but I'm also, I'm like a, I always joke that like nobody hates noise music more than noise musicians. <laughs> and cause they don't look like they're having fun at the shows. Yeah. Um, but also like sound art requires a certain type of patience for a person in a gallery to encounter something that I don't, I don't want to expect of people. And so I've been using the podcast as a way to like, I just love making audio collages of like crazy stuff and building it and doing all these weird things. Yeah. I was going to say, that's one of the things I notice right out of the gates, listening to humor in the object is the, the sound collage in the beginning. You're sort of set up, you're setting a tone. Yeah. Um, and it usually, and it's got a mix of your writing. I, I assume that like robotic, the, <laughs> the, I, the, the computer voice is your, your, your writing just through the, yeah. through the robot on the computer. But, um, yeah, that's, and the, then you're sampling and pulling a song or something and sort of layering all these things together. Yeah. yeah. I have like, I'm and that's a setup for each episode. Yeah. And every episode has a different sound collage at the beginning, which yeah. takes longer than recording and editing the episodes. Making the sound collages <laughs> takes a stupid amount of time, but I yeah. just like, it's a way to kind of introduce the idea of sound sculpture in a pop medium, which is the podcast. Yeah. So like rando people listen to it and I don't think that I'm subjecting them to anything. I mean, I try to produce it nicely. It's very melodic. It has like an arc. It has a, a thing to it where I think it's kind of fun to listen to and you don't know what to expect every week because when yeah. you hit play on the new humor and the abject, everyone begins with like an explosion sound effect, but then yeah. that, then there's like a three or four minute sound collage that has absolutely nothing has, has fuck all to do with any other episode that you've ever heard. Right. There is a theme song, but that comes like later, but the sound collages are um, increasingly I'm making them after the interviews and they're kind of like they're Easter eggs. Mm -hmm. Like all of the content of the sound collages is related tangentially to something that you will hear later in the episode, right. almost like a, next time on Westworld or something, yeah, you know, yeah. like that kind that, of, I was gonna say, they sort of sound like, um, like they might, they sort of operate like a gift for me, for someone that's close to you. Like, I feel like they're, that's a, that's a, a, a maybe a little gift for one of Sean's friends or something like that. Or, yeah. or like, you know, this thing that they talked about and there it is. It's for the, uh, we, I don't yeah. get that, but, um, yeah. And but, it's, uh, it's for like, I mean, it's a gift it's, for someone that I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also kind of like, it's like I said, I can't, I mean, I would love to have money and be like, do you want to be on my podcast? I'll give you $250 yeah. to sit down with me. But like, where the fuck am I going to get that money? Yeah. But, but there's something that I can do, which is I can spend all this time so that like, you know, that your episode that we did together, I sat down, I listened to it. I thought about everything that you said to the degree that like I made a sound sculpture that is only for you. Mm -hmm. It will never repeat on the show. Right. Like it is just for your episode yeah. and it's special and it's to kind of try to say thanks for whatever. And also it gets the person to, I understand. I interview a lot of people who say, you know, I, I'm not going to listen to it cause I hate yeah. listening to myself talk. And yeah. I totally understand that. Um, but they always listen. They listen to hear what sound collage I made for them, cool. which I feel like is a thing. And then they'll listen to a couple minutes, but like, I hate my voice. I'll turn <laughs> it off, you know, but, yeah. but it's like a, Hey, but I did do this thing that's just for you. And it's, it's also really fun. Cause I play, I mean, it's, it's difficult for somebody. I think it's, it's clear when it's sampled from a movie or something like mm -hmm. that, but there's a mixture of like, a lot of the stuff are like karaoke or instrumental versions of songs that I've ripped, but then I'm also playing instruments on top of them. I'm layering all this kind of stuff. I have these sound like catalog folders yeah. that are just gigabytes and gigabytes of stupid shit. And it's about creating a space or like a texture or a sculpture that 
because um, I can't make real sculpture. Mm-hmm. I wish I knew how. I'm yeah. not good at it. But yeah, I, I feel like if that. we had another hour, we could talk about what the fuck a sound sculpture is. Is the sculpture something that we can walk around? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I think it. I think of it in the round. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think maybe that's why I call them sculptures. No, no, I get it. Also, I get because it. I mean, people say sound sculpture, but I, yeah. I think of it too because yeah, it's meant to. It circles, and I hope it just fucks you up. Yeah, like in kind of a fun way that like you get on the train and you turn it on and you're just listening and it's like a scene from the movie my girl screaming in your right yeah. earbud while like some weird techno song that you forgot yeah. you heard in eighth grade plays and then it segues yeah. into some other thing like yeah they're great i think it i mean it's 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 a specific signature to the project which i appreciate too <laughs> um yeah man it's so i mean it's a generous thing that you're doing and and i clearly appreciate it i mean i'm doing some version of of it in in my own way but um oh yeah it's fun i mean i like i love i'm a podcast fiend like i love listening to them too i love listening to people talk so i appreciate what you're doing and i appreciate what all these other podcasts that i'm hooked on do and i just i like to participate in it because like and these people give this shit away for free yeah they literally just do it because they it rules it's like people on youtube who make tutorials yeah thank you for telling me how to like mask this thing in photoshop like you just did that to yeah to be nice yeah that's cool yeah and and I think it's also uh, worth applauding that you're talking to artists and about art because there's so much, there's so many misconceptions out there about yeah. art and artists and how they work. Um, and I think you know to tap into your your educator's muscle and, and maybe mine too that this is just another version of teaching in a way or totally. sharing knowledge. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, started as a class. Yeah, yeah. And I'm it's not. Great. I mean, one of my favorite things about even doing it is that I really do get after almost every episode, some kid that I don't know from some college writes and says, Hey, I listened to the episode with so-and-so. And when they said this thing, like it made me feel so much better about what I'm trying to like get through right yeah. now or made me feel like I had permission to do this or that. And it's just like, it's kind of like if you're a student, I try to think of like it as like a killer visiting artist lecture series. Uh huh. That you can listen to on the way to and from yeah, class. Like you I, yeah, don't have identify to, with that. Yeah, you don't have to go and you're not getting homework and you don't you don't have to go to a weird awkward dinner with the yeah. artist afterwards and like watch your teacher. Yeah, like maybe this is what uh, younger or, or students that uh, all the all the MFA peel off are just listening to humor in the abject. Well, <laughs> that, their education's in there. <laughs> what I wanted to do is try to get like I wanted to guilt like colleges into like subscribing to the drip as like a thing that says like, Hey, I'm giving this thing away for free. That's good for your students. Yeah. Just your library should just give me $5 a month. Right. It's only $60 a year. Like it's a pretty cheap subscription, you know, to have, to have, uh, in the course of a year, like, I mean, I do more than one episode sometimes a week. You're going to get at least 50 episodes a year. Right. So you're spending 60 bucks. It's like, it's like an iTunes song. Yeah. You know, like, come on, man. And all your students can listen to it or whatever. But, I guess they know that I'm still giving it away for free, so they don't have to do that. But yeah, um, I just did the did the thing. Oh, I did you hear it? Yeah, yeah I've done I've uh, done it a couple of times. I've noticed you. Yeah. The uh, uh, I wanted to ask because this is something I think about, and I always come up empty. But it, is there a dream interview that you want to do? I've thought about that a lot. I yeah. mean, there are a lot of people that I would love to interview. Um, I would really. I would love to interview Bruce Nauman. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's not going to happen. But uh, I think I would love to talk to Adrian Piper. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 
I, I think Adrian Piper is an example of somebody who has whose work is like bitingly funny. Like mm-hmm. very intense like funny in like not the again, not a ha ha way. Like but the the humor that's in it is so pointed and so sh- I mean just like if you think about the setup for the piece cornered, that the way that the chairs are set up like creates the audience dynamic that like creates such a if you get up and leave while you're watching it you're an asshole mm-hmm. i'm oh it's just like and that's not but that's like that's a different type of humor there's like a it's like related to games or something but yeah. i'd love to talk to adrian piper and i guess just like on a on like a geeky level like i don't know i feel like he can't do it anymore and like now he's really famous but the first time that I saw Zach Galifianakis's live at the Purple Onion stand up, which mm-hmm. is like very old, um, I would love to interview him and just talk to him about. I would want to talk to him about what it means to like, because of your success, have to lose your original craft. Yeah. Because he cannot do stand up anymore. Right. Because no one is going to believe that Zach Galifianakis is actually teetering on the edge of like an alcoholic breakdown while he's playing the piano and saying all these fucked up one-liners. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. People will be cheering for him and being like, Wolfpack, you know, yeah. like, yeah, like by becoming successfully like cannibalized the like artistic part of what he did. And I'm not judging him. I would do that in a second. Yeah. But I'm interested in like, is that a, I mean, how do you process that? Because we as artists don't, only a very small number of people get to a point where they have to keep making the same work. Yeah. You know, most of us are just like, clawing at it in the dark just oh, right make this thing but yeah those are those are like a few people i'm sure there's more but those are some people that i just like i feel like i saw something that they did at some point and i was just like oh mm-hmm. like it changed the way that i thought about yeah. how you make stuff right uh i feel like we're 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 sort of seeing i can sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> yeah. but one of the things i feel like it was uh, important to talk to you about um and this is something that I, that has come up in other recordings I've done. Is this is this idea of, of good art hygiene? Uh-huh. Um, and I guess we can define that as, or, or the way I look at it is, as a, an artist living and working in New York. What sort of is there a responsibility to get out and see shows and, and consume visually and, and go to museums? Um, I mean, you're a keen observer. It's I think it's part of your work. You you, you go out and look at stuff so that you are informed when you interview people and clearly you have a love for, for looking at art. Um, I wonder like how much pressure we need to be putting on ourselves to get out there to do everything and see everything or, or like where, yeah. where you find yourself in that, in, in this sort of um, the pressures of getting out there and sort of making the scene. Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. And something yeah. that I think I'm, I'm always wrestling with it. Yeah. it. Probably it's seasonal. It like wanes or waxes depending on yeah. when something's going on. But um, I think that I do think it's important to, if you want to be part of the fabric of a community that is, um, and, and I, and I, I know that like social capital is, is typically used in a disparaging sense, but yeah. I'm saying if you want to be part of something where social capital is a major element, meaning simply a supportive network of people that kind of like agree, like, Hey, right now we are the voices who are, um, speaking about these things through making contemporary art. Yeah. I I do think it's really important to be going to stuff. I, I also think that it's very important for each individual to think about what is your personality. and, And it's, I like that you use the word hygiene because like, what is, 
hygiene feels so like personal. Mm-hmm. And so you yeah, what's cannot, dirty for me is not going to be dirty. Yeah, for and you person. cannot model um, how social you are based on how social other people are. Yeah, if people have you. Everyone is on a wildly different spectrum of like how comfortable you are in certain environments, how what things are productive for you, what things are not productive, what gives to your art, what takes away from it. And I, I guess trying to strike that balance and not model that behavior off of like, oh, well, these people are at every single thing that I go to. And it's like, well, to be frank, like I miss, I would say 90% of the things that I wish I could go to. Yeah. I, that's just the reality of it. I have other things I'm working on. I need to not go out into situations where I'm drinking every single night. Yeah. Um, I'm also not a person who is adult enough to go to an opening and not start drinking the free beer. That's yeah. an, I mean, if there's free beer yeah. in a giant tub, I'm going to drink it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I think that, uh, the people that you see every single time that you go out, unless there's like the micro chance that you two have the exact same schedule, that person is probably not getting very much done. Right. And, but I do think. It's very important to the people who show up to your stuff, who care about what you do, that you reciprocate that. And I was with a group of students who were visiting New York from Portland once, and we went to Glenn Lagan's show at the Whitney, and he did a uh, really great little talk in like a conference room with everybody. And he said something that, you know, it's not like a a statement that he made up because people say it in other ways, but it was the first time I'd heard it said out loud. And he said, you know, he's a, he said he's a very shy person and he doesn't, love going to like a busy art event and he said but you know the art world only functions because people show up Mm -hmm. and he's talking about the art world that's not just uh blue chip markets and things but the the world that we all yeah that we all work in and i think that that's valuable And when you first if you moved in new york because you use new york as an example if you move here like by all means like go nuts when you first get here have fun go to everything but develop a pace like because it's a city that uh, eats you up and spits you out and, and it can be really easy to run ragged and mm-hmm. then you never have any time to do your own thing. Um, and I think that in addition to that social uh, element that it is important to figure out whatever it is based on your ticks or your strengths or your weaknesses that um, make you produce. And for me, it's, I, I don't know that I'm, I don't think I'm a great visual artist. I'm yeah, you mentioned that one in the last podcast. You say you don't make art. I don't think. Well, I <laughs> do. I do, but not like, I don't know. I'm definitely, I'm like an administrator. Mm-hmm. Like I'm good at that kind of stuff. I'm good at organizing and putting stuff together and keeping a calendar and following through. And so for me, you know, it sounds lofty to be like, oh, humor in the abject as a podcast is like part of my art practice. But like, it totally is. Like I'm sure. a nerd. I accept that at this point. And I'm not saying, I'm not an I'm a nerd because nerds are cool. I just mean like, that's something that like, there's focus. Yeah. And I can't yeah. make like a sexy ass painting that like kicks. I don't know how to do that kind of stuff. I'm not good at it. And I am good at this thing. And so what I did is I set up a, a totally arbitrary thing that like, I'm not going to get in trouble if I don't release a humor in the abject every Sunday morning, Yeah, but I'll be upset with myself. Um, and so I, set that up and created a thing and i'm just like well i I, this is like what i do now like this is the thing that i do and for me that works because i don't have a regular studio practice if i were a painter or a sculptor or something i'd probably have a really different approach and have a different um setup or type of parameters that i set but i just create like accountability for myself to produce something and that's what i'm excited about right now but um before i had started this i used to 
really make a lot of like zines for people and yeah. stuff and did a lot of self-publishing i noticed yeah and yeah. things like that but um i was before i started doing humor in the abject i was in like a funk like not like i'm not i mean um, emotionally aside but um i just mean like productivity wise yeah. i didn't know what i was i was just like i don't know like i'm not making anything i'm not yeah. doing anything and and so i found a thing and i was just like oh for my hygiene um this is a thing that i can balance and it kind of nicely fills in some of that social stuff too because the, I, I mean I spend the time talking to people and then I release it and then even though I'm not in the room with the people listening it's all about this interaction and like I'm helping to put I mean some of these people like I just interviewed Alex DeCorte like I'm not putting Alex DeCorte on anybody's radar yeah but I mean his voice was perfect by the so way great. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's cool to put a lot of people collectively onto a lot of people's radars in conversation with each other, even if they're not just through this thing. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of like, I'm curating a show of all like my favorite people who maybe their art doesn't make sense together, but the conversations do. And so mm -hmm. it's just like an archive. And I think archives that are like podcasts are social, even if we think of yeah. them as very like a one-on-one -on -one yeah. experience. Of it's humanizing but. some of the stuff that feels hard to identify with sometimes yeah yeah art wise i mean like that thing on the wall that i don't quite understand yeah or that performance talk to the artists and there's maybe a little bit of clarity or at least some context for the next time it's in front of you which yeah. is great i think that's a wonderful thing and but, i learn a ton yeah yeah i mean <laughs> totally um i also think that um i don't know humor in the objects is, is a um as i see it is a wonderful summary of all your interests oh, it's nice. like a nice way of colliding all these things the writing the comedy uh the teaching um the social stuff yeah uh there it is it seemed it's kind of funny that it took you know as long as it did for me to just be like i am i just like sitting down with people and then like talking to yeah them. and yeah. that's kind of i mean I don't, i'm not i'm no terry gross but i definitely like I think over the course of the year i'm like oh, i've gotten much more comfortable with how to talk yeah. to people yeah um so that's been that's been interesting too. And I think it's, I think it's radically improved my teaching. Yeah. Like a lot. Yeah. And I would agree. I mean, I like, uh, my, my way of processing and, and then using words to get that stuff out is, has been improved, I think through this. Um, yeah. And when you're interviewing people, you're, yeah. you're listening really differently. Mm -hmm. It's like a very different, it's a, it's a strange thing, yeah. but I think it, it translates into a classroom so differently because all of a sudden I'm just like, I'm like, oh wow! I'm like really hearing what's happening differently, and I can't like this. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I it, I can't really. I've never really tried to say it out loud, but it something's there. Yeah, it's for like sure. changing the way that I teach, which I think is that's cool. great. That's great. Uh, so to bookend this, uh, what's on the horizon? Um, oh goodness, what is on the horizon? Um, and even if it's not real, like some some like thing <laughs> that you like would love to do. Um, I mean, I am Bruce Nauman interview. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to. Uh, I've got some cool interviews lined up for the podcast. I'm really excited about those. One thing that I'm very excited about that's coming up soon is my teens at Dia Beacon. Our summer session is like full time. Oh wow! So usually I just go up on the weekends, but I'm gonna go to Beacon for five weeks uh, and be living there. And I'm going to be with my teens every day for five weeks, like weekdays. Um, so that's going to be super fun. And we're just going to have a blast doing things like that. Um, besides that, I guess I, uh, I don't know. I'm just going to try to, I am going to try to like 
give myself the permission to start like thinking about making sound things as like discrete sure like or their own dedicated feeling like thing. i can i i haven't done too many performances in the last couple of years but thinking that uh hey hey this is pretty fun i, c- I could probably do this so th- those are my those are my goals is to both make more humor in the abject but not use that as the only crutch yeah like, i gotta be gotta do something else you know cool. what i mean um well thanks for for doing yeah man thanks uh, for coming being over. a participant in this project of um, course you know, I really love this idea of we have some looking great at this crossover. As, too. Yeah, we have similar <laughs> friends. We've interviewed some of the same people, um, but like this idea of a, a like a, like a mild collaboration in a weird way yeah, is yeah. really nice. And um, you know, I thank you for your cultural contributions and and for like transmitting this sort of information that I'm interested in out there as well. So thanks, Sean. And back at you. And, uh, <laughs> thanks to everybody's listening. Yeah, thanks. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that you can learn more about this project and the artists featured by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also make a donation on the support page and be sure to subscribe in the Apple Podcast directory. Thank you for listening and check back soon for a new episode.